This morning's sermon is from Genesis 42, 1 through 28. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came, among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? One of the common issues that I face as a pastor or one of the common, most common, I wouldn't say the most, but it certainly is up there, that I encounter is division in families or family dysfunction. Uh, It can be in a marriage. 
It can be between parents and children, maybe wayward children or children that are rebelling. A lot of times it is beyond the immediate family to extended family and in-laws. Every one of us is familiar with family dysfunction to some degree. Okay, for some of you, uh, you don't have to sit there and think about, do I have dysfunction in my family? It's just, it's, it's front and center. And you've, and you've dealt with it and, and maybe don't know how to deal with it. Others of you are probably sitting there and going, ah, do I have family dysfunction? And you have to think about it some. But there is discord, division, family dysfunction to some degree in every one of our families. The question is, how does God bring about reconciliation in the midst of relational dysfunction? And it shouldn't be surprising to us that there's family dysfunction. In fact, after sin entered the world in Genesis chapter three, the first two results of sin that are recorded are a marital spat between Adam and Eve, that they went from being allies to being enemies and suspicious of one another. That rings true in our marriages. And then the second was their two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. Those are the first two results of sin that are put before us. And they're all around the breakup and the dysfunction of families. So how does God bring about reconciliation? We're gonna look at the need for reconciliation, the foundation of it, and finally, the signs of reconciliation, or what's the evidence that reconciliation is happening. Let's start with the need. Look at verse one. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Okay, so let me just, in those two verses, you get a wonderful picture of the dysfunction in this family. Okay, first of all, crisis has hit. After the seven years of plenty, the famine has started. It's gonna be a seven-year famine. Crisis has hit this family. And if, if you could somehow get a video on these first two verses of what was happening, you have brothers standing around and just staring at each other. Nobody's taking action. You've got Jacob, the father, barking at his sons to do something about this. And this is just the continuation of this dysfunction in this family that we've seen from the beginning. It started when, when the brothers sold their, their youngest, Joseph, at age 17 into slavery. And the reason they sold him into slavery is because they hated him. They really wanted to kill him. And they hated their dad's favoritism. And if you notice in this chapter, Jacob, the father, is still showing favoritism. Joseph's gone, so he moved on to Benjamin. They don't like their father. That's why they were standing there. They don't want to take his commands. There is, this is a dysfunctional family with awful communication, dishonesty, suspicion. They don't like being around each other. It's a dysfunctional family. And I want you to see here, it's been 20 years since Joseph went missing. We're going to get to it later. Joseph's 37 now. He got sold into slavery at 17. 20 years of dysfunction in this family. The brothers are still harboring guilt over how they treated Joseph. Jacob thinks Joseph's dead. They don't know the truth. Now, as I, as I share that, maybe some of that rings true in your families. Maybe not all of that, but, but 
to some degree, there's suspicion in your family or communication's awful or there's dishonesty or there's, I would say this, dysfunction in families, which is relational dysfunction, there's two categories of it. There's, there's pretty dysfunction and there's ugly dysfunction. Ugly dysfunction is, is very obvious and it's usually caused by some sort of sin or scandal or tragedy and this is the family that, that no longer wants to gather together, holiday gatherings, reunions, they don't gather. If they do gather, it's volatile. They're screaming, there's yelling, uh, visits are shortened. I mean, there's just, a, it's, 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 it's front and center. And maybe this is your family and, and, it's, and you know it, but nobody quite knows what to do with it. And so the, the best thing is just to put the walls up and just to avoid it and just to live in the dysfunction. That's Joseph's family. It's been 20 years of that. The other kind of dysfunction is what I'll call pretty dysfunction. This is a family that on the surface looks like it's together and everything's great. This is the family that, that gathers uh, for holidays and gathers for reunions and everybody shows up and they smile and they talk and maybe don't talk about a whole lot, weather, sports, doesn't get much deeper than that, but everything's good and all the conversation happens on the drive home, right? Between spouses, they get in the car and it's, did you hear her say that? Why, did, did you see what she did when our son did that? And you know, there, there is jealousy, competition, there's dysfunction under the surface, but it just is, it's never confronted. It's never communicated. So what do you do with this? To some degree, every one of us finding ourselves in a situation where family is dysfunctional, as has been going on since Genesis three and four and beyond. Well, first, you have to recognize the need for reconciliation. And I would just say right here, to those of you that, that have a dysfunctional family, which is everyone to some degree, but to those of you that have said, I'm done, don't even talk to me about reconciliation. My hope by the end of this is that you see the need for it, that you see the need for reconciliation, that, that being done with it and putting it behind you is not the answer. There's a need for it. Second, though, what is the foundation if once we see the need, what's the foundation of reconciliation? What I want you to see from this story is there's two critical pieces of the foundation that have got to be in place if there's ever hope for some reconciliation between two parties. Number one is the commitment of God. Now, remember where we're at in this Joseph story. He was sold into slavery at 17. At age 30, he went into Pharaoh's service to be prime minister of Egypt. And now we've gotten to past the seven years of plenty. So Joseph's 37 years old. It's been 20 years since that tragic event when he was sold into slavery. And what's happened in those 20 years? Joseph has not gone looking for his brothers and his dad. The brothers have not gone to Egypt looking for Joseph to try to buy him back out of slavery. The father, Jacob, thinks Joseph's dead. In other words, there is... There is no movement towards reconciliation in this family. They are living in the dysfunction and up until now for 20 years are quite fine with it. But God's not. God is committed to reconciliation. He's committed to it. You say, why? Well, this family here as small and dysfunctional as it is, is at this point the covenant family of God that will become the nation of Israel. 
that will one day, New Testament, become the church. God is committed to reconciliation. He's not okay with dysfunction. God is a God of reconciliation, not division. Listen, when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, and that was when fracture happened and division happened in relationships with Adam and Eve and their children, when sin entered the world, God didn't say, yes, now I get to punish them. No, it grieved God. It grieved him when his children walked away from him. You say, how do you know that? The two places in the New Testament that record Jesus weeping, it's only two times in the New Testament, that say that Jesus wept. Number one, it was over the unbelief of Jerusalem. And number two, it was over the unbelief of Mary and Martha and those surrounding Lazarus' death. That Jesus, who was God, gives us a, a, a glimpse of the Father's heart, was weeping over the fracture and division that had racked his people. And they were like sheep lost without a shepherd. It grieved God's heart. And so he's committed to reconciling his people to himself and to one another at all costs, even if it cost him his own son. That's how committed God is to reconciliation, even when we're not. And so we see in this story, the reconciliation of Joseph and his family did not begin with Joseph. It didn't begin with his brothers. It didn't begin with their dad. So how did God do it? Well, he put Joseph in a place of power in Egypt as prime minister. He put a famine into the land, which forced his brothers to come meet Joseph. Now, just think for a second. It's been 20 years. What do you think Joseph's going to do the first time he sees his brothers in 20 years? Hey, guys, it's me. It's me. Let's go see dad, right? No. It's a head scratcher. Verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. For the first time in 20 years, they didn't recognize him. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. You're going, what? Accused them of spies three times, threw them in prison for three days, and then sent them home with the money in their sacks to look like they were criminals, that they had stolen the grain and hadn't paid for it. That's how he treated his brothers. And you say, well, it makes sense. He's getting them back, right? He's getting them back. It's revenge. He's making them pay for all the pain they inflicted on them when they sold them into slavery 20 years ago. The answer is no, that's not it at all. Look at verse nine. And Joseph remembered the dream that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies. The harsh treatment, or what I'm going to call the severe mercy that Joseph delivers to his brother does not flow out of, notice he doesn't say he remembered when they sold him into slavery and said, you're spies. No, he remembered his dreams. Now, if this was 17-year-old immature Joseph, as we looked at in the beginning, he would have said, see guys, I told you you'd bow down to me. No, he didn't say that. He said, you're spies. See, Joseph realized that his dreams of his brothers bowing down to him was not for his ego. He's had 20 years of God transforming his heart, and he sees now that his brothers bowing down to him was not for his ego, but for their salvation and their redemption. 
And so he begins this, what is called severe mercy to see if his brother's hearts would change or if they would soften. And he was wise. Just speak for a second for boundaries. You may have a family member um, that has sinned and they don't see it. And maybe there's been abuse and, and, and you say, I, I shouldn't just give myself to them. Shouldn't I put up boundaries? Well, yeah, there's some wisdom in that. Joseph didn't just say, hey guys, here I am. Because the last time he got thrown in the pit and sold in slavery, right? No, he's, before he opens himself up, right? He's, he's testing them to see if their heart has changed, if, if God has done some transformation, right? And so he gives them what, what, I'm, what I wanna call I think it's appropriate, severe mercy. Just think about that phrase, severe or harsh mercy. Now, his brothers at the time didn't see this treatment as, thank you, God, that you're finally gonna save us and redeem us. No, this was harsh treatment, but that's the way it is. The goal of God's love is repentance. The goal of God's love is repentance, but it doesn't always feel like love, does it? Hebrews chapter 12, verses seven, 11 Say this, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, right? As beloved children. For the the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The treatment that Joseph is giving to his brothers, the brothers when they received, it was painful, but it was for their redemption. And it was for this reconciliation that God was doing. That leads us to the second piece, the second critical piece of this foundation of reconciliation. So first and foremost, it's that God is committed to it. That God's committed to reconciliation. That's the hope. The second piece though is soft-heartedness. Now, what is a soft heart? I want you to notice in this story and specifically in this conversation between Joseph and his brothers, the theme of honesty that comes up over and over. Look at it. Joseph accuses them of being spies and then look at verse 11. They say, we are honest men. Well, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case and I'm sure it wasn't still the case today, right? They they lied to their father about where Joseph went. So Joseph accuses them again of being spies. So in verse 13, they tell a little bit more about the family, right? So now they start opening up with some more honesty. And then in verse 16, he says to them, you're spies. And then Joseph says that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. See this theme developing. Puts them in prison for three days and says to them in verse 19, if you are honest men. Then verse 20, so your words will be verified. You see the theme of what Joseph is trying to get out of his brothers. And that is honest confession, that they would be honest with their hearts, that they would be honest with their sin and confess it transparently. You see, they're living in hidden guilt. They're living in hidden shame. It's there. They remember what they did to their brother. We're gonna see because it comes out. And Joseph and God through Joseph is through severe mercy, getting them to confess honestly. And of course they do. In verse 21, then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Interesting, you see here a glimpse into what actually happened 
when Joseph was sold into slavery in chapter 37. There it's just he was sold. Here we see this 17-year-old teenager begging his brothers in anguish, don't do this, don't do this. It ramps up the traumatic event that it was in Joseph's life and what the brothers witnessed and the wounds that it inflicted. And so then they returned to Canaan with the money in their sacks. And in verse 28, look what it says. At this, their hearts failed them. What does this mean? These brothers had hard hearts. They were stony, they were scaly, they were, they were encrusted, they were impenetrable. They wouldn't be honest with their sin or their hearts. There was a wall up. Their hearts failing them means that suddenly this wall started crumbling down and they started having a soft heart and understanding their sin. What do we learn here? Hard-heartedness always leads to division and fracture and discord. Soft-heartedness leads to reconciliation and unity. And hard-heartedness, we see it with the brothers because they had it. Hidden guilt, hidden shame, unconfessed sin. When that is the case and the heart is hard, it leads to anger, it leads to, to, to bitterness, to um, to envy, to fear, and I don't have time to go into it, but to know that if, if, if you've got hidden shame and guilt and unconfessed sin, it is gonna come out in the form of one of those, anger, bitterness, depression, anxiety, fear, right? But it's the soft heart that God's looking for. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. You hear that? Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So let me ask you this, is your heart soft? And let me ask some diagnostic questions, diagnostic questions to help you answer that question because that can be a little bit vague. Right? Is your heart soft? I don't know. When someone rebukes you or confronts you about your sin or wrongdoing, do you get defensive? The reason you get defensive is because you do not want to be honest about your sin. You do, not, you do not want to admit failure. When someone confronts you about your sin or wrongdoing, do you blame others? Blame a coach, blame a parent, child, blame a boss, whatever it may be. You shift blame because at the core, you don't want to be honest about your sin. You don't want to admit failure. Or when someone, when someone calls out your sin or, or, or wrongdoing, do you justify it? Well, everybody else is doing it. Or, well, at least I'm not doing that, right? The comparison or the excuse making. Listen, the reason you justify it is because you don't wanna be honest about your sin. You don't wanna admit failure. That's, that's what a hard heart is, right? So the defensiveness, the blame shifting, the justifying, all those actions are the, are the evidence of a hard heart. And what do they do? They produce division. They produce discord. They produce suspicion, a lack of honesty. Let me just uh, narrow this down for a second into your marriage, okay? Let's just get from family dysfunction into your marriage. Um, when is the last time that defensiveness has led to sweet reconciliation in your marriage? 
right? Or when's the last time that the blame shifting? It's your fault. When is that, has, has that led to this just amazing, sweet intimacy? Or, or the justifying it, right? When, when have you justified or made an excuse for your sin and it was like this amazing reconciliation in your marriage? Of course not. Of course not, because those are evidence of hard-heartedness, and hard-heartedness always leads to moving away from one another, whether it be marriage or families. God desires soft hearts. You say, what, what resource do you need to be honest about your sin? Listen, the one man in the history of the world who had every right to get defensive when he was accused the one man in the history of the world that had every right to shift blame when he was accused because he was sinless was Jesus Christ. And he didn't. Isaiah 53, seven says it this way. He was oppressed. Jesus prophesying about the coming Messiah was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus hung on the cross and didn't defend himself, didn't shift blame. Why? Because he took your sin and put it to death so that it no longer has power over you. Your sin does not have power over you. It doesn't have the power to shame you. It doesn't have the power uh, to, to, to label you a failure. Jesus put it to death. And so therefore, you can be honest about your sin because it has no power over you. That's the resource when we talk about honest confession and being honest about your own heart. That if you know Jesus and you understood that he took your sin on the cross, then it no longer has power over you. And so what that means in your family or in your dysfunction, whether it's family or relationships, is that you need to be the first one to confess and to repent out of the power that Christ gives you to lead with a soft heart. How does God bring about reconciliation? We looked at the need. We've looked at the foundation. Now let's look at the signs of reconciliation. How do you know when it's happening? How do you know when reconciliation is beginning? Right? Look at verse 35. We didn't read it. It's towards the end of chapter 42. It says, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they, they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. So they go back to Canaan. They get home, they open up their sacks and the grain is there and there's no money or the money's back in their sacks. Why were they afraid? Because they looked like criminals. They didn't pay for the grain. They walked out of the store with merchandise and didn't pay. They, they appeared to be criminals. And Joseph did this with great purpose. Why? Because in the past, his brothers had put money above life. His brothers had valued money above life. And so now he puts this back in their sacks so that if they return to him in Egypt, they do so at great risk. For them to go back and rescue their brother Simeon, who had been held in custody in Egypt, and to bring their youngest brother Benjamin with them, to do that, they had to risk imprisonment for appearing like criminals, maybe death, certainly loss of reputation, hardship. In other words, they had to risk 
their own lives to go back to Egypt to rescue their brother Simeon. And as we see at the end of 42 and the beginning of 43, that's exactly what they do. And so you see with these brothers who had hard hearts, who didn't care about one another, suddenly now as God is softening their hearts and they're being honest with their hearts, are now turning to love their brother and brothers and to put the good of this family above their selfish needs. That we see here, self-denial is causing them to move towards one another, not away from one another. Author Leonard Sweet, he, he describes an encounter when he was going to speak at a conference at Grand Canyon University uh, in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And Tom Wiles, who was the chaplain of Grand Canyon University at the time, went to the airport to pick him up and to bring him to the university. And he picked him up in a brand new, you know, shiny Ford Ranger pickup truck. And Sweet had just, he had just traded his truck in. So they're, they're going to the airport and they're having this wonderful conversation about trucks and pickup trucks, that sort of thing. A couple days later, when he gets done speaking, Tom Wiles, the chaplain, goes to pick him up and bring him back to the airport. And when he shows up in his fancy new Ford Ranger pickup truck, uh, Sweet notices on the passenger door, there are these big dents and gouges on the door. And he gets in, he says, what happened to your door? Tom Wiles said, well, my, my neighbor's basketball post fell over into the door and, and left dents and those big white scars. And he said, the worst part is that my neighbor doesn't feel responsible. So, you know, Sweet's like, well, did you call your insurance company? What are you going to do to make them pay for it? And then listen to this chaplain's response. He said, this has been a spiritual journey for us. After a lot of soul searching and discussions with my wife about hiring an attorney, came down to this. I can either be in the right or I can be in relationship with my neighbor. Since my neighbor will probably be with me longer than this truck, I decided that I'd rather be in a relationship than be right. Besides, trucks are meant to be banged up, so I got mine initiated in the real world a bit earlier than I expected. Listen, the signs of reconciliation are a self-denial that moves us towards one another. A self-denial that values relationship over money, that values relationship over status, that values relationship over the prideful need to be right, that values relationship over all kinds of self-centered pursuits. Who do you need to be reconciled to? Who has God laid on your heart, maybe in these minutes, in these moments, that you need to be reconciled to, that you need to move towards in grace with a soft heart. Choosing, choosing not to be okay with dysfunction, choosing not to be okay with division and fracture, but choosing to embrace God's heart for reconciliation that he makes possible through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. The Straight Story, it's a Disney movie. And it's the story about uh, an, an older 73-year-old man 
who reconciles with his brother. Alvin Strait gets word that his brother, Lyle, has suffered a stroke. And so he decides that he is gonna go to his brother to see him and to make right. So the movie depicts him uh, putting together this makeshift trailer and hitching it on the back of his 1966 John Deere riding lawnmower to make this trip. It's a 500-mile trip. And so he gets on that John Deere, and he starts going to where his brother lives, and he, he camps out at night in fields or in people's backyards, you know, whoever will be hospitable and leave room for him to put up a tent. And he finally arrives at his brother's place, and he drives down the dirt road and then up to this old wooden shack. And he gets off his John Deere, and he's, he shuffles up to the wooden shack, and he says, Lyle, Lyle. And there's no answer. And he fears the worst. He fears that his brother has died you know, in the six weeks that it took him to get to his brother's house. And then suddenly he hears, Alvin? Alvin? And he comes to the door and he invites Alvin up on the porch and they sit down and there's this you know, just kind of silent moment where he, Lyle is staring at this John Deere <laughs> in this makeshift trailer. And then he looks at his brother and he says, you came all the way to see me on that? With tears welling up in his eyes. And Alvin, with tears welling up in his eyes, says, yep. Lyle was humbled by the grace of his brother who led with grace and led with a soft heart to reconcile. Who do you need to be reconciled with? Who is God moving you towards in reconciliation? That you would move towards that person with a soft heart, that you would move towards that person in grace. Let's pray. Father, we feel the effects of the fall in Genesis 3 in our families all the time. Whether it's the bickering in a marriage, whether it's the, the separation with children, whether it's difficult in-laws, we feel family dysfunction. And Father, we confess this morning that oftentimes we're okay with it. And we confess that you're not. That you're a God of reconciliation. That you're a God that longs for your people to dwell in unity as one. And we also confess that the only way that happens is through the cross of Jesus Christ. The one who took our sin and put it to death so it no longer defines us. That we can be honest with our hearts and lead with softness and grace. Father, I pray that you would move your people towards one another in reconciliation. And I pray for those right now that are probably trembling inside in their hearts with the thought of moving towards 
someone who they are not reconciled to, I pray you would give them strength by your Holy Spirit and boldness and wisdom and how to do it wisely and well, but that we would not settle for division and that we would be a people that embrace your heart for reconciliation. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.